1: Not many of us get to have closure with our parents, but I, my father and I had that privilege and that I had an experience, um, you know, it's a longer story, but we'd, my parents had a lot of issues around drugs and alcohol and arguing, and we had had some bad experiences in our life. And I was revisiting a place where we'd had a bad experience and had come to see that it was all going to be Okay and i got to tell my dad that and i could tell by his reaction on the phone that it was important that he heard that i was going to be okay no matter what and that it was over and that was the last conversation i had with my dad because two days later he was dead
0: Hey everybody welcome back again to another episode of industry standard i am so happy to have you here those of you here for the first time welcome and those of you who keep coming back for more punishment thank you thank you thank you i so appreciate your support and i am very grateful and today part two with kelly carlin i know you are going to like it a lot And before I get started, I want to let you know if you need to, you can reach me at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter, or you can go to BarryKatz.com and leave me a message, and hopefully I'll get back to you before 2027. No, I'm kidding. I will get back to you. Just bear with me. A lot of people reach out, and I love the letters and the FedExes and the messengers and everything in between. Really great. A lot of people send me different kinds of videos and different kinds of creative things they've done. And it's really wonderful to see. And I love it. Don't stop sending them. Please don't ever stop sending them. And when I sit across from Kelly Carlin, I think of a lot of different things that go through my mind. The biggest thing I think about is this weird situation that a select few of us go through that I know, but probably millions of you out there go through, is when you're in a situation in a family where there's somebody inside the nuclear family or within the family that's on a higher plane. It seems almost impossible for yourself, or for anyone in your family, or anyone you know, to attain that level of respect, admiration, acclaim that that person gets on a regular basis. And in Kelly Carlin's case, her father, George Carlin, a man who was revered by his community, A person whose writings and performances were at the highest level. He was a prolific writer, but spent prolific amounts of time working, writing, creating, workshopping, out on the road performing, doing shows that were incredible city to city, writing books... And for Kelly Carlin to grow up in a situation like that, and for those of you out there who have people in your family that seem to perform at a higher level when you might not necessarily know exactly where your place is in the world. And it's hard to find your place in the world when you're constantly under the same roof as a person like George Carlin. I'm sure we all know people like Kelly who are amazingly talented people. But sometimes when you've grown up in the shadows of a man who's an acknowledged genius who would be etched into the proverbial Mount Rushmore of comedy, There's an internal form of adversity that you put upon yourself to figure it out and to get where you need to go. But true to the person that Kelly Carlin is, she not only looked at what her father did and saw all the great things he accomplished, but she also knew him as a man who wasn't perfect And she knew the things that he did in his world, professionally and personally, that maybe she didn't want to follow. And throughout the years, she formed her own point of view and her own way of doing things and her own personal life and her own professional life producing writing and creating and performing tremendous one-person shows at the greatest comedy festival in the world the montreal just for laughs festival being an esteemed member of the board of advisors of the national comedy center the -the state-of-the-art five-star home to the greatest resource and platform for everyone in the world to understand the history of comedy like no other place she has found her way and throughout it all she has persevered and become an incredibly respected member of the comedy world and the comedy community and if you happen to be one of those people out there with somebody in your family who is excelling to the highest degrees and making it difficult for you to see where your place is in the world, if you can figure out a way to handle it in a way with class, dignity, power, work ethic, and incredible vision towards your positive outlook in the future, I can guarantee you. You can aspire to have the kind of professional journey that George Carlin had. But you can also have the incredible possibility of the kind of career that Kelly Carlin has.
1: Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz to see me.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied.
1: If you want to be successful in
0: show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses, Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. you fucking firing me up, Katz.
1: I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? How about Harry Katz, back in the house, house, house. Let's do this.
0: I want to go way back. Okay. Way, 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 way back. Mm-hmm. All right. So, take me through the town you were born in. Mm-hmm. What the socioeconomic dynamic of your family was at that time, mm-hmm. and then as it came about, what truly was your inspiration to be? an artist
1: so i was born in dayton ohio my mom was born and raised in dayton and she had gone back to dayton to have me because my dad was on the road trying to become a comic trying to make a living uh they had met at the racket club
0: so at that time he'd never been on television
1: i don't think so it was 1963 when i was about to be born i was uh he might have I don't remember when his very, his Jack Parr was, that was the first one he was on. And I I think that was after I was born. He was a starving artist. He, when my mom and dad met in 1960, he was with Jack Burns. They were a comedy duo. And uh, Lenny had seen them. Lenny Bruce had seen them and um, had gotten um, them. uh, I think they had gotten them some gigs So they were, they were doing some of these dinner theaters and my mom worked at a place called the racket club. She was a hostess and they were coming through town. And this racket club was really interesting because it was Dayton, Ohio, which is the middle of nowhere. And yet Phyllis Diller and Jonathan Winters were regulars and Lenny Bruce was regulars at this club. Um, It was, you know, it was the hippest place in Dayton and, and Phyllis and Jonathan Winters were both from Ohio. So it was kind of a local scene for them. And my parents had met there. And um had a whirlwind romance and then uh, got married and uh, got pregnant with me. I was born in Dayton. Mom went back to Dayton to uh, to have me because dad was on the road. And then they immediately moved into a one-room apartment in New York City uh, on the Upper West Side in the same building my dad grew up in. Spent most of his uh, childhood in. His mom still lived in the building, um, West 121st Street. And uh, we were starving. My they had a they had a hot plate, and uh, there was no kitchen. We had a, a studio apartment, and uh, my mom was having to borrow money for food from Mary, my dad's mom. And uh, it was it was bleak. Uh, we had a Dodge Dart, and I went on the road with my parents. I was a baby, and I was in the back seat on the road. Um, and my mom sometimes was like the only person in the audience. Um, <laughs> it was it was tough times uh it was it was intense and then um dad started getting some traction then and and um he broke up with jack burns before that and he was a solo artist now and uh and then he started getting a little traction and he got a jack Parr, and um and got a couple of other things
0: he did the tonight show with jack Parr, and did it change where he started getting more lucrative bookings? Or? A,
1: a little bit. It was it was stop and start, stop and start. It was still starving artist, very much so. Um, and then he started getting slightly better gigs and stuff like that. And and I don't remember how it. I don't. You'd have to read his memoir, which is called Last Words. Everyone should read it. It's great if you love him. Um, but he then got he got hired. On Craft Summer Music Hall. So back in the day, they used to have um, the Honeymooners, or the, uh, Jackie Gleason had a show. And then in the summertime, Jackie Gleason would take the summer off, and they'd have these replacement series in that time slot. So Jackie Gleason's time slot was um, this crafts Hour, and so they had this Craft Summer Music Hall, and John Davidson, this young handsome singer, you know, corn cornbread, you know, corn fed. I mean, just like Middle America guy. Uh, was the host, and my dad got hired to be the head comedy writer and the comedian on this. And it was, I think it was like nine or 12 episodes, whatever it was, the summer replacement was.
0: But had your dad ever written a script for a television? Yes. So play? at
1: this point, he'd been doing the Hippie dippy Weatherman and the Indian Sergeant. So he had a couple of bits and he was doing some television. But I'm talking about writing structure. He just had to write a little comedy bit for himself every week got it he didn't have to write anyone else's jokes and or if they needed a little something or whatever he would do that too and for the
0: audience back then for some reason there was a cycle of the networks started giving comedy shows to musical artists who never did comedy people like kelly's talking about sonny and cher bobby vinton yeah
1: they were all they were variety shows so you had some comedy you had a lot of musical numbers and my dad would have to dress up like the whole ensemble would to do some a couple uh, like an ensemble song (laughs) like the footage is amazing my dad had a young richard pryor on also so the other comics would come on and my dad and Richard Pryor, I have tape of them on that show with sombreros on, singing some sort of Mexican folk song together. It's incredible. Uh, so dad did that, and then he, you know, and oh, so we moved out to L.A. because of that. That was 1966. So oh. we moved here because okay, of that. So you
0: give up the apartment, you moved out, and we LA. moved
1: here, and now we're renting a house in Beverly Hills. What and
0: kind of house? How big was it? Was it?
1: It was on Beverwill, between Olympic and Pico. And it was it was small, but it was on, right on the... I think they call it post office, Beverly Hills post office. And um, it... Uh, but it was Beverly Hills adjacent. And dad now had a full manager and a full agent and was now getting much better gigs. I mean, he was getting paid... Big money to go to the Playboy Club and go to all those places. How
0: old were you when they moved to L.A.? I
1: was uh, almost three when we moved here. Got it. So it's pretty much my whole life has been here in L.A., knowing my conscious life has been here.
0: Your earliest childhood memory?
1: Uh, my One of my earliest childhood memories... Well, I do remember the a flash of being in the apartment in New York City and taking my mother's makeup and using it as crayons... And doing art on a wall. And it was my mother had used her last $3 to buy that makeup. And she woke up from her nap and I had done this and she just wept because she had no money. And she didn't want to punish me because I was just being a kid, but she, it was like that's how dire our financial situation was. So I have that small memory. Um, but I have memories from Beverwell, that house of my dad playing rock and roll records. Uh, my dad playing the White Album there, I remember. I remember my dad... The wake, Beatles White the Album. The Beatles White Album. I remember my dad waking me up in the middle of the night to watch the Apollo moon landing. Um, so I was almost six at that time, maybe just six. I have I have a lot of memories from that house. I have a memory of my mother falling backwards drunk into a suitcase. Um
0: When was your first memory of any kind of alcohol or drugs? That
1: was my my first memory of that of my mother falling into a suitcase drunk and her being laughing hysterically and being floppy and weird in her body. And I remember the realization that something's wrong with mommy and. That's when my parents started. My dad was on the road a lot. My dad, I looked at my dad's calendars from those years. My dad was gone half the year. And my mom knew nobody in LA.
0: You know how the calendars have the dates and they have the money in parentheses. My, my by dad it.
1: kept my dad kept incredible records of his career, including the first years between 1959 and up to 1967. every single gig he did, and the transportation he took to get there and how much money he made. And I mean, like, my dad was a little OCD. So incredible records of these things. So I have his calendars. These are all in the archives of the National Comedy Center now. Uh, But incredible records of all that stuff.
0: And so the first time you ever witnessed anything with your dad, your mom was when she fell in the suitcase.
1: My dad was a, a pot smoker, so it was a lot more subtle um it really was like the cocaine years when those started those were in the 70s once 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 my dad made the change long hair we're talking class clown occupation fool you look at that album cover occupation fool my dad is a fucking cokehead on that album and there's a lot of coke in our house at that point and it's getting crazy and that's when i noticed my dad
0: so you're a single digits in age, yet you yeah. see coke all over the place.
1: Yeah, actually, the the first time I did, I, the, the first thing I ever saw where my dad was out of control on something was bef- between Beverly Hills and the Palisades. We lived in Venice for a year and a half, and my dad took some acid, and it was a bad trip. And my mother and I had to sit on him for 45 minutes to get him through the acid trip. He was shattering all these old pictures of himself, like the square version of George Carlin. He was shattering them and yelling at these pictures and he was having a very bad trip. My mom and I had to sit on him and I was um, seven or eight years old when we did that. So that was so I knew that, you know, something was up. My parents were having a lot of arguments at that time. But yeah, there was I knew what cocaine was by the time I was 10, 73, you know, class clown era.
0: And what in your family Inspired him to go from the jacket and tie mm. and the beautifully coiffed hair, right? nice shoes and slacks, or as they said back then, trousers. Right. <laughs> this is something that all artists struggle with. Yes. Most artists struggle with transforming to another kind of gear or comedy because it's so safe and it feels so easy staying where you are
1: successful artist it's yeah feels almost impossible yeah
0: so he was becoming successful and he was making money and johnny carson loved him with his suit and tie he was making
1: twelve thousand dollars a week opening for the supremes in las vegas in 1969 that's yeah.
0: huge. When he was working for the Supremes, if I remember correctly, he gets fired. He gets fired, but wasn't he still wearing the suit then?
1: Yes, 100%.
0: He was so he was this is what's fascinating. He started
1: growing sideburns.
0: But he's wearing the suit, but he starts doing material that fit the guy with the t-shirt and the faded jeans.
1: And doing and and doing it very subtly, never mind Red Fox is down the street doing midnight triple x shows
0: but red fox and red fox for the audience was truly the first def jam comic even Mm -hmm. though there Mm -hmm. was def jam and the raunchiest of the raunchy of the raunch so my dad
1: says the word shit oh first of all he got fired for saying ass one night and then got and then got fired for saying shit in the sense of not like shit shit but like um he said something like uh you know i don't i don't on oh, this show, I don't say shit. I smoke a little, but I don't say it. And that's what he got fired for, for saying that. And that's when he realized, oh, and the other thing he realized, too, was no matter what TV show he was going to, he was writing new material all the time. He would go to these TV shows and he would have this new sketch ready to go. So he had these two major bits he did. One was the Hippy Dippy Weatherman, Wonderful Wino. So there was Hippy Dippy Weatherman. There was the D j Wonderful Wino, and then there was the Indian Sergeant. He had these three characters he'd done. They were characters. They were not him. He'd written them, I mean, you listen to the Hippie Dibby Weatherman. It is some of the most subversive material. When you see the clip of him sitting there with Johnny Carson, sitting on the couch, doing the Hippie Dibby Weatherman I've for Johnny, seen it. Johnny almost falling off of his chair. He did fall off of his it's, chair. M- it's a moment in comedy history. You know, as a comedian, you have made it forever now. It's it's happening. You're but what's a superstar.
0: fascinating is, is that he performed the Hippie Dibby Weatherman in a chair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and killed in the chair. Killed.
1: And so everywhere he went, now all they wanted was the hippy dippy weatherman, wonderful wino, or Indian sergeant, or some, some slight variation of so it. So it's
0: like the Rolling Stones. They wanted satisfaction yes. and sympathy for so the devil. So in
1: the '60s, that's all they could they they could not think out of the box. Now
0: back then, because I don't know the answer to this, because today, like if Bill Burr does a line on a radio show, it's dead. It's dead. <laughs> Back when George was doing comedy. They
1: wanted the same thing. So over. in other
0: words, if Hackett were doing did a bit or something like that, or Joan Rivers, well, they'd it, want it again?
1: Well, but not even the same jokes, but Newhart would do the telephone thing. But it would be a different conversation, but, he, but it's the but same device. But the driving device.
0: instructor, he didn't do over and over again?
1: Of course he did. Yeah, they all did. But
0: the fascinating thing about your dad is... That's another aspect of his life that changed because well, that's came why a point it changed. Where he didn't repeat.
1: That's why it changed because he was going everywhere. They weren't letting him grow as an artist. He wanted to grow as an artist. He was a genius, hungry to grow. And all of his friends were musicians and he, he had been smoking weed since the 1950s. Since he was, you know, 12 years old, he'd been smoking weed. He was always a counterculture guy. On the outside, he didn't look like that. On the inside, he was a counterculture guy. His insides did not match his outsides and the people he was hanging out with were changing the world through their art, through music. And he felt like he was a fake. He was his audience were the parents of the people he wanted to be reaching. And he was tired of that and he wanted to go directly to the audience that he wanted to go to, which was the rock and roll audience. And as an artist, because he was doing these characters, he wasn't even in his act. And so that's why for him, he did the AM FM album. So the AM FM album was the AM side was the 60s George Carlin. So he was telling his audience, yeah, you know, and love me about this. Yeah, I'm the hippy dippy weatherman. Yeah, I'm this guy. Yeah, I'm this. But on the other side of the album is now the FM side. And he started doing his other material on that side. And he Literally took his audience's hand, well not literally, figuratively took his audience by the hand and said, you're coming with me. We're going over to the FM side. And then from there came class clown and then occupation fool.
0: Was there a moment that you've been told or that was spoken about then or after he passed away or in a memoir where... There's that moment where something happens. Was it being fired from the Supreme show or was it another moment where he said, I'm never wearing this fucking suit again and I'm never repeating another bit again as long as I live?
1: You know, I think these are all incremental changes. And this is in his memoir, Last Words. And I don't know if there was something besides the getting fired. I mean, the the getting fired definitely had something to do with it. He did a gig at a Playboy club and started doing some anti-war material. And um, the management called up to his room and said, we can't guarantee your security, your safety here. You're going to le- need to leave the hotel. He started dropping acid. He said that the, one of the biggest things for him was in 1969, I think he dropped acid about six times. And it completely changed his whole perspective about life and who he was and the universe and he would like go on stage he would he had all these straight gigs booked and he hated it and he was trying to get fired just so he could just have an excuse and he would go on stage and read the phone book one year one night he went on stage and laid underneath the piano and just hum tunes for 20 minutes I mean he was trying to get fired because he he wanted out of everything he wanted out of all of his contracts whatever those were um, and then finally he came to my mother and he said, I can't do this anymore. And my mother had just was just about to put a deposit down on like her dream house. Like we'd been renting this whole time and it was like just about and he was like, I can't do this. And so we went instead of going from, you know, this rental in Beverly Hills to owning the house on the hill in Bel Air. We went to a a very small apartment in Venice Beach because After my mom got over the initial disappointment of, oh, we're this close to our American dream and we're not going to get it um, after starving artists and all that kind of stuff. And she saw where my dad was at as an artist and what he wanted to do. She then became once again, like they were at the beginning of their ra- relationship, his biggest champion and they fired all the managers and she started doing his press kits and she started booking gigs for him. And he started doing nannies again and started doing all this stuff. And we moved down to Venice and my dad grew his hair out and, um, and everything changed. And within a year and a half or two years, the albums came out and then we got the biggest shiny house in the Palisades. Mom got her dream house finally. But uh but yeah, it was it was a culmination of things, and and I think it, Dad really said that it, you know, so doing psychedelics, doing psychotropic drugs, um, are game changers. They're life changers, and it really did change his life. And see, this is why when my dad died, I mean, I'd always wanted to do my solo show and tell my story because I have a survivor story. Also, you know, I mean, obviously, I've told a little bits and pieces of it here. But when once my dad died, I knew that. A, there was room for me as an artist, but that I was really ready to tell this story because the story of the Carlins is an incredible story. It's a story of love and it's a story of survival and it's a story of insanity. And um and I knew I had a story to tell. And I, you know, and um and I you know, I love our family. We we hung together and we made it through and we survived and we loved each other deeply until the end. And uh, and yet my dad was a very private person. He didn't, we, we published his memoir posthumously. He had that memoir sitting in his computer for three years. He could have published it. He could have made a pretty penny on that thing. And he didn't, he was, a, I think he really was a very private person and it was really uncomfortable for him. i I'd, I'd attempted a solo show in 99 after my mom died when I knew I wanted to start telling my story. And, um, it made my dad very uncomfortable. I didn't make anyone into perpetrator or victim. I just talked about, in very funny general terms, about the alcoholism and stuff like that. And it was just so painful for my dad. It was it was a big, it was a thing that he never forgave himself for. Was what he put me through as a kid with all that stuff. And he just, I I did the show like five times at a small theater. And he's like, honey, I love you, but I can't be there. I can't do it. And I ended up putting the show away, too, at that point. He didn't
0: go to one of the performances. He did not. How did he know what was in there?
1: I gave him the script. I mean, I handed him the script, and then I didn't hear from him for six weeks. Then we ended up going to my therapist. Um, It's all in my book. Uh, But he. uh,
0: That's when you went to the therapist, and he shared with you, listen, I support you. I love you, but
1: I can't. I can't go, I can't do this, you know, and why didn't you tell me about all this going on? And, you know, and then I said, well, this is, you know, maybe I needed to be on your stage for you to finally hear me. You know, I mean, it was, it just came out of my mouth. It was like, you know, I... Our dance was, How are you doing? I'm fine. That was, you know, we lived in a very codependent household. If anyone out there is listening and you grew up in one of these households, you know what I'm talking about.
0: But I mean, that had to be bone crushing doing your first five shows and the person who you wanted there the most besides your mom. Yeah. Didn't show up.
1: Yeah. And I put it away because without my father's approval, It was meaningless to me on some level. You know, it was like if I couldn't have his backing, I wasn't going to create a career and a life based on the foundation of that kind of separation from my father. I wasn't ready for that kind of separation from my father. Um, That was that was too much of a hard line for me. And so I put it away and I went to grad school and I have no regrets about that. Life is the way it works out, and I actually love that I went to grad school and got to do what I got to do, and it's it serves me to this day. But, um, but you know, once my dad died, um, and I had this story still alive inside of me, people were like, "Well, uh, well, what happened? How this? How my solo show and my memoirs happened this time was, became friends with Lewis Black. Lewis decides to go and four wall a lounge on a cruise ship." and invite like Ted Alexandro and Kathleen Madigan and Dom Herrera and John Panette, like this amazing cast of people. And every night they're there, uh, and Larry Wilmore, and they're all rotating doing stand up each night. And uh, and then Dur- he goes, I want you and Bob to come along, but I need a day event. If you do a day event, you can have the whole trip for free and come party with us. I'm like, uh, yes, I will be coming on the cruise ship with you and your friends four-walled this lounge and there was like 600 Lewis black fans and Lewis says, oh I don't know you're a storyteller because I've been doing storytelling gigs in LA just come on board and tell some of your family stories and play some of your dad's clips and you know do an hour do 75 minutes they'll love you they're all your dad's fans so I did I went I played. 10 clips of my dad and in between I told stories. Some from my dad's memoir, some from my own stories. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. People laughed, they cried, they loved it. The whole week everyone's like, you need to go on the road, you need to go on the road, you need to go on the road. And, um, you know, Danny Robinson was there. You need to go on the road, everyone, you know. Uh, Mark Lanow, all those people. And, uh, and I was like, no, I'm not going on the road to be George Carlin's daughter. That is the last thing I wanna do. I'm finally Kelly Carlin. There's no way I'm gonna be George Carlin's daughter. And then I got very, very close with Paul Prevenza and Paul and I started talking about this story and started talking about what the story could be and what it was. And Paul saw the real potential of a personal healing for me of being able to show a different side of my father to the world and um, and the opportunity to get on a stage and do the work that I've always wanted to do. And without Paul Prevenza, that show would have never happened. And without that show, my memoir would have never happened. But um paul i used to say to paul you know look i know they come for the george but i want to build a show where i know after intermission they're staying for the kelly and that's kind of the transition that ended up happening through doing the show was yeah sure it's called a carlin home companion growing up with george but that's just the first domino you know and that and my my childhood and all the craziness with that is just one little part of the show. The rest of it is the adult dance that we all do with our parents. You know, the parts of us we hide from them, the parts of us that we show and the personas and all that kind of stuff. And, and I knew I had great stories to tell. And, uh, and once I got on stage, I got a chance to have stage time and actually learn how to be a performer and learn what that meant to, to do. And, and, and then learned a little bit more about my dad because I was doing what he did. I really started to understand my dad on a much deeper level because I was on the road alone after a show, all hyped up, uh, in airports by myself or that thing where you have to rest all day to get ready for show and you can't do anything else. Um, I, I had, I ended up having an incredible deep appreciation for the sacrifices my father made for his art and for me, for raising me and, you know, taking care of me
0: hey everybody and i wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast starting with aqua true if you haven't bought this countertop water purification system you have to do so it's incredible it turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly it saves you thousands and thousands of dollars it gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have and your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, You'll immediately get a $100 discount, a $100 discount, and start enjoying the best and most cost effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the Air Doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600. And you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it four, Three. Three. five, six. six. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention something. You can tell me a word, a sentence, a story. Okay. Anything that right. comes to your mind. The Gong Show.
1: Uh, I went to junior high with the host's daughter. I can't remember the Chuck Barris. Chuck Barris' daughter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Spalding Gray uh,
1: see Spaulding was my he's my inspiration I saw his show I saw um, I saw the film Swimming to Cambodia and then I saw Monster in a Box live at UCLA and I thought to myself oh you can go on stage and show every bit of your terror anxiety confusion and and it's okay my dad didn't do that work and Spalding Gray taught me how to do the work that I do which is I believe in going on stage and telling the truth about every aspect of my life
0: Johnny Carson
1: well I, I my dad well obviously Carson is everything to a comedian and Carson having my dad on and Almost falling off of his chair is one of the most seminal moments of my dad's career. But for me, I got to be the kid who got to go with dad to Burbank to do Carson. And then Freddie de Corbita, who was the executive producer, would have a golf cart that said Freddie d And he would let me drive the golf cart around the NBC lot. And I would get to go to places and like look at the laughing scenes or meet. Um, Jimmy Osmond, who would buy me candy bars. Uh, So that's like my memories of the Carson show.
0: (laughs) Feeling invisible.
1: Oh, well, you know, that was everything. My mother and I would walk into a room with my dad and we would immediately, we would get a micro, a microsecond of attention and then immediately we, we would be non-existent. We would disappear right, right before people's eyes.
0: Carnegie Hall.
1: You know, there's this moment when I was a kid where my dad did his first Carnegie Hall. And for my dad, it was everything because he was a, a born and raised in Manhattan. And um, I just remember being down in the bowels of the basement with my dad and the manager coming and getting us. And we make our way to the stage door. And people are stomping their feet and chanting, George. George, 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 it was an incredible, there's nothing like that. There's nothing else on the planet that creates that kind of energy. And then my dad took the stage and there was this roar of humanity. And I just remember, I think it was like the first time I'd had an experience of what it means to be transcendent. I had some sort of transcendent experience around that, which then completely imprinted me for like, oh, Fame and fortune or celebrity equals transcendence, which will really screw with your spiritual life. (laughs) Steve Martin. Well, Steve Martin. So people go up to my dad all the time and would say, hey, I memorized Class Clown when I was... I memorized Steve Martin, Let's Get Small. And Steve Martin came out to see, we did a a tribute to my dad at the National, at the New York Public Library, right after my dad died with Tony Hendra and a bunch of people, the Stiller family and Whoopi Goldberg emceed. And Steve Martin was in town and he called them and said, are there any tickets left? And I had to go up and do, I wrote, I did a story, one of my stories at that thing. I'd never, I had never performed in front of my father's audience before and I'm up st- on stage and I'm starting to perform the story and I look down <laughs> and Steve Martin's in the front row and I think oh lord <laughs> how am I going to get through this and he laughed I loved it
0: Carol Burnett show
1: so the Carol Burnett show my parents no matter where we were in our lives and no matter how hard it was between my parents there were certain things we would do as Carlins and one of them, one of them which was watching the Carol Burnett show together and to watch my dad cry tears of laughter because Tim Conway may he rest in peace was trying to get Harvey Korman may he rest in peace to break during a sketch like for my dad that was the biggest moment ever for me as a person to watch the man who makes the world laugh to see what makes him laugh and then watching Carol Burnett as I did with Lucille Ball and Lily Tomlin Carol was, I wanted to be Carol Burnett. I mean, if I could do goofy, silly voices, characters, hairdos, dresses, that's the path I wanted to take as an artist initially.
0: Ram Das.
1: Uh, Ram Das. Well, I've always been a seeker, as both my parents were. And uh, Ram Das certainly has been one of those teachers that um, has taught me. A lot about truth, and a lot about really mostly about not taking yourself so seriously. And then when I was watching the documentary that Judd Apatow made with Gary about Gary Shandling, um, and there's a scene with them getting to like FaceTime or Zoom with Ram Dass, I was so jealous. <laughs> I was like, "Damn, I want to FaceTime with Ram Dass." Little things.
0: Big subjects.
1: Oh, look at you doing research. (laughs) That would be uh, the ways in which my father would talk about his material in the world and the things that he focused on. And two things he would do is he would focus on the little things that connect us all as human beings. That would be the observational humor that he was really, I'd say, one of the main people who created that genre and then on top of that he would do big subjects like death like the planet like you know war you know he would take on these big topics and just dismantle him and that was really what he was mostly known for the last 15 years of his career but he also loved to do the little the little things that connect us the little moments You know, talking about the Rice Krispies and all that kind of stuff.
0: David Letterman.
1: David Letterman. um, I don't know much about David Letterman. Uh, The one thing, the one memory I have about David Letterman and my dad is it was like it was in the 2000s. And we're in New York and we're in a limo and we're on and we're all in New York together. It might have been. The 2000s, or my mom would have been alive. I don't know. I think I don't know. It doesn't matter. Dad is a dad is dad. He's the genius superstar George Carlin. And we're in the limo on the way to David Letterman. And my dad is practically flop sweating because he hated doing late night panel shows. (laughs) I think it brought back memories from the 60s. He hated chit chat. And the thing he loved about doing David Letterman, though, is because David would let my dad do whatever the hell he wanted. So my dad would come out with a routine of like talking about his fake sons and D'Artagnan and how he's going to get his nipples reversed and shit like that. And David would just go for, you know, would just be right there with my dad and just feed. he'd just be willing to be the feeder, you know, and and enjoy it. And and the thing I want to say about David Letterman. And he's got all sorts of kinds of a reputation in this business and all of that. And I, I don't know about any of it because I don't know him personally. But after my dad died, he had Belzer come on the week after my dad died. So he could, so they could both talk about my dad and the importance of who my dad was to comedy. And that makes me cry just even thinking about it, how sweet that is.
0: The premiere episode in 1975 of Saturday Night
1: Live. So strangely, uh, in 1975, I was 12. Uh had no idea my dad was off to New York to do some strange experimental show, uh, and they hired my dad to to be the first host of SNL, and and it's incredible. And he was, he refused to do sketches because he was terrified of that sketch comedy thing. The
0: only show in forty five years with, where with the, him, host with the host is not no in the sketches.
1: sketches. I know. And, uh, but
0: later on, he decided to do it in 84, He right? did.
1: He did, because then he'd had some acting, uh, more acting. But at that point, he'd done a little bit of acting and hated it. He hadn't quite healed his, his relationship with acting. And he was on a lot of cocaine. My dad is so... I was the kind of kid that like, my parents would walk in the room and I could tell you what drugs they were on. My dad was so fucking high
0: so he could perform seamlessly on any drug
1: yeah but you could see i mean he's not 100 on his game but yes he could pretty much perform seamlessly uh but if you watch you can see the man has been smoking a lot and i guess you know according to the legend all the books written about that week you know they had to like go and get him in his room and knock down the door and all sorts of stuff like he was you know he was not doing well
0: your first professional laugh.
1: So my dad gets to do a special, uh, a sitcom pilot for HBO. And um, it's called Apartment 2C, which was the apartment he grew up in in New York City. And the premise is that he's a writer in New York and he can't get any work done because all of his crazy neighbors and everyone keeps knocking on the door. And he never gets anything done. And so it gets him a chance to have all these funny people come on and be funny characters. And Pat McCormick was in it and Bobcat Goldthwaite. And all this kind of stuff. And so I said, this is when I wanted to do sketch comedy. So I said to him, it's 1984. I'm 21. And I'm like, Dad, will you write me a part? You know, can I be in this? And Because I knew I could could handle it. And um, so he wrote me a part. And the part was a punk rock Girl Scout, which was awesome. Because at the time, punk was really in. And so, you know, it was this great, great costume I got to be. And I got to be, um, you know... This raunchy Girl Scout to him and tell him, you know, here's your fucking cookies and stuff like that. It was really fun. I almost threw up right before the whole thing and everything it was terrifying. And Pat McCormick's giving me acting lessons backstage. It was great. It was absolutely fabulous. Um, so we do the scene. We, we do the dress rehearsal and we do the scene for the first time. And my dad comes up to me with tears in his eyes and he says, congratulations, kiddo. You just got your first professional laugh. And he marked it down in his calendar. That's, how, that's the kind of sentimental man he was. Wow. He was a very sentimental man.
0: IRS.
1: Oh, God. Yeah, so my dad was one of those uh, entertainers who um, didn't pay attention to money. He was a child with money and uh, made some bad choices with some bad advice on some accountants. And in 1977, 78, 79, somewhere around there... Uh, it came to, He came to realize, after ignoring the accountant's calls and the envelopes and everything, that he owed over a million dollars to the IRS. And basically, he spent the next 25 years paying off that debt because the IRS wouldn't let, never, ever, ever forgive him for his debt. My mom felt it was because of his politics and his material. And um, I think it really added to his heart disease and his stress. And I think it added to the reason that he died so young at 71. I think the stress of it killed him in the end, accumulatively over the years.
0: The National Comedy Center.
1: So the National Comedy Center is in the middle of nowhere. It's in Jamestown, New York, which was Lucille Ball's hometown. And it is the, it is the keeper of George Carlin's stuff. It literally has my dad's stuff in it. Uh, It is a fifty million dollar multimedia, state of the art experience of comedy that tells the story of comedy from every genre that you can imagine. It is, it is one of every single person who walks through the comedy center is blown away, including everyone from Louis Black and Lorraine Newman, and I mean you, you name the person who you know. Give me a name and they've, if they've walked through it. They're, they're blown away by this place. I donated my dad's archives there uh, two and a half, almost three years ago. Uh, th- I could have donated it to the Smithsonian, but, it, you know, at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where they put the trunk in the back, <laughs> that's what happens to your stuff when you donate it to the Smithsonian. The world does not see it. I wanted a place that would tell the story of George Carlin, and they have a permanent exhibit of my dad's. Uh, His entire archive has been digitized. You can have a you can digitally tour the archives. Plus, there's all this memorabilia, all this kind of stuff. But the center itself is incredible. Um, And if you live in the region, please, please, please come and visit. It is the only place. It is the first and only place in America that is telling the story of comedy. And comedy is half of all all art and how there is no place that tells the story of comedy yet in this and stand-up comedy is an American art form so um, and it's all genres of comedy are represented there so anyway I'm on the board of advisors um, go to national comedy and it's a non-profit it's a non people they're not profiting off of this so go check them out online they're amazing
0: hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success So just go to barrykatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Women on the Verge Coaching.
1: So I have this other life. Uh, beyond the entertainment. No. I do. I have another life, Barry. I no. Do. I know. It's very frightening for people. Pack Again, up. Let's it's get very out of here. frightening for people in the entertainment industry to even even to ponder this. Sometimes of
0: course you have a great you, life. You
1: get people like glazed look over when you say, are you still, are you, are you, what are you doing? Are you producing something? No, I'm coaching women. <laughs> and they kind of glaze over and they start to disappear. Um, I have my master's in Jungian psychology. I'm a, a person who's uh, very, very interested in the psychology and Spiritual development of humanity, and uh, and I'm really good at it. So philosophically, I'm good at it, and the coaching, I'm good at. And so, just in the last year, I've created a year-long empowerment program for women. Because here's what's going on on the planet, people: shit's going down. Infrastructure or systems are changing. Uh, everything is everything kind of institution you can think of is changing. It's not Donald Trump's fault. We've been doing this for 15 years, and no one's been noticing. All everything's up for grabs. We're all renegotiating our place on the planet. And women are doing that, too, if you haven't noticed. And I am extremely excited about that because it is time for women to take real leadership in the world because half of the population is being left out of the conversation most of the time. And women have incredible sense of intelligence and wisdom that no one else particularly has the same way men have men have their version women have their version too they need to be part of the conversation so i'm very very committed to women's leadership and so women on the verge coaching is a women's empowerment program that helps women no matter what they're doing moms want to run for president want to be an entrepreneur want to be an artist you are an artist you are all of those things already but you want to really step into your full power and I'm helping women do it. And it's so exciting. And it's just wonderful to watch women take huge leaps for themselves and the planet.
0: Surprise audio in a college classroom.
1: So, yeah, here's the, um, the burden of being the child of a celebrity. You're just going on minding your own business, trying to live your own goddamn life And you go to UCLA and you start back up again and you're in some remedial English class because you haven't been in school in seven years. And so you're in there with Troy Aiken and all the other athletes. And this young pup of a quote unquote teacher comes in and we're going to learn how to write compare and contrast essays because those are going to be useful in your college career. And we're sitting there, and he says, I'm going to do something a little different today. Instead of teach you about compare and contrast essays, I'm just going to let you listen to this little bit of audio I have here at the perfect compare and contrast essay. And he hits play, and it's my dad doing baseball football. <laughs> and I think... My dad is even following me to school.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The fairgrounds arrest.
1: Oh, oh, the Milwaukee Summerfest. So it's 1973. We're in Milwaukee. Uh, Class Clown has, my dad has recorded Class Clown. Maybe it's 1972, 72, 73. Uh, My dad has recorded Class Clown, but it's not out yet. My dad gets booked to open for Arlo Guthrie at what they call um, uh, Summerfest, which is in Milwaukee. It is a huge outdoor fair, and there's this huge stage. You know, it's music festival time, people. Everyone is drunk. Everyone, (laughs) as I describe it on my solo show, um, what is Summerfest? Summerfest is an island of sausage surrounded by... (laughs) a river of beer. And so my dad goes out opening for Arlo Guthrie and my dad's doing, wants to do his new class clown material. And the class clown material, it's not like sticky at all. It's like storytelling. And he's trying to get 10,000 drunk people to be quiet while, while he's trying to, It's like, Hey, this is kind of different material. You can hear him on the audio. You kind of need to listen to this kind of stuff. So then he gets kind of frustrated and stuff and he's throwing F bombs and, you know, and shit. And he's saying, you know, his normal kind of just peppering his language throughout. And then he, then The the cops come and say to the promoter, "Um, we don't like the language that's going on here. Uh, You need to get him off the stage. We're going to arrest him for the language. So now my mother, the promoter comes up to my mother and says they're going to arrest him the minute he gets off stage. Now, my mother knows that my dad has both coke and weed in his pockets. It is 1972. It is the Nixon era. My dad will go to jail for a long time for possession. My mom goes on stage with a glass of water and my dad looks at her like, what are you doing on stage with a glass of water? Like that kind of a look. And my mom's whispers to him, the cops are going to arrest you, you know, exit that way. The cops are over here, exit stage left. We all dad. Oh, so, so then what does dad do? He doesn't decide like, oh, uh, I need to go now. I'm just going to wrap this up with a cute little story. No, he goes right into the seven words. <laughs> He goes right into the seven words seven material. Words you can He double television. down, <laughs> doubles down, starts doing the seven words thing. His microphone goes down. Music goes up. He leaves stage. We all go into the dressing room. My dad's emptying his packets. My mom has a baggie of cocaine. She's hiding in the drum set of the band that's going on next. I think it was Tower of Power or something going on after Arlo Guthrie. And um, suddenly there was a bang. And I started to cry because... I knew the cops were coming. They were going to arrest my dad. I thought they were shooting at us. Someone had popped a balloon. Uh, everyone, All the adults were like, oh, ah, it's a balloon. And I'm like fucking freaked out now. Door opens. Dad walks out. Cops handcuff him. There's a famous picture of him on the internet. You can see it. He's in a tie-dye shirt, long, shirt, long sleeves. They arrest him for, you know, indecent language in front of kids or something like that. And, um, you know, my mom, because my mom had bailed out Lenny Bruce and my dad in the early 60s. She knew that you don't just go get any lawyer, you get a First Amendment lawyer. And so she went and got a civil rights lawyer and they bailed him out and it was like 250 bucks or something. But yeah, harrowing story.
0: Your last conversation with your dad.
1: Not many of us get to have closure with our parents. But I, my father and I had that privilege and that I had an experience... um, you know, it's a longer story, but we'd, my parents had a lot of issues around drugs and alcohol and arguing. And we had had some bad experiences in our life. And I was revisiting a place where we'd had a bad experience and had come to see that it was all going to be okay. And I got to tell my dad that. And I could tell by his reaction on the phone that it was important that he heard that I was going to be okay no matter what and that it was over and that was the last conversation I had with my dad because 2 days later he was dead
0: your proudest moment in show business
1: my proudest moment in show business hmm it was getting to do my solo show at the falcon theater here in LA I got to do a 5 week run of it and I got to make the show visually Paul and I got to make the show visually exactly what we wanted it to be and I got to rehearse it as an actor and I got to do it for 25 nights in a row which I'd never done before I'd never had that much stage time I'd been doing a month here a month there and I got to be a real actor on stage I got to live my life as an actor and so not only getting to, ha- to finally feel like I had chops on stage and could, could really work the material. And I mean, the material was very specific because we had 600 audio and visual cues. It was an incredible show, audio and visually wise with my dad's stuff in it and stuff. Um, beautiful, beautiful set design. But it was an incredible moment of getting to finally prove to myself that I could do it. So for me, it was that
0: your dad's proudest moment.
1: Well, I think for my dad, he really believed and he had said this publicly a lot that jamming in New York was the game changer for him. That was the that was the moment when he knew he was a, an artist. Um, he 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 had stepped into a different level with the conversation and the stance that he was taking with the world and his work. And it, it, and then, and that was in 92. So that, that was the third evolution for my dad. There was the first one, which he wanted to be, he wanted to become Danny Kay when he was a kid and um, he became a DJ and, uh, and then became a stand-up, and then got acting gigs and he was horrible at it. And he realized, Oh, I guess I am a stand-up. So that was the first one. And then the second one was was when he went from straight to the counterculture guy and got to do that and wrote on that for a while. And then, of course, jamming in New York was, yeah.
0: Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level.
1: Mm. I guess... I mean, there's two ways you can be disappointed by this business. You can be disappointed in yourself for not taking the shot. And you can be disappointed in how this town treats you. And I would say for me, my biggest disappointment is that I didn't go for it in my 20s. I didn't go and audition for SNL. I didn't join Groundlings. I didn't become that thing. My general disappointment with this (laughs) I mean I never I never was like up for anything and didn't get it you know I think in general I just I've always been suspicious of this business and um didn't always thought that the only way I was going to be satisfied was to be at the level that my dad was at and that's uh kind of a once in a 50 year kind of a thing those kind of people come along you know so I don't know I don't have any big disappointments about you know I mean it's just generally this business is very disappointing to me I find it to be it's a business Uh, you know and once the bean counters took over in the 1980s the whole business changed and it it became much more disappointing so um, the relief I have today about it all is that um you know, if you want to play the game, you got to be willing to play the game. And I'm not, I'm not interested in playing the game. So, you know, I'd rather do other kind of work in the world and get to be creative in my own right. So, you know, I'm mostly disappointed in myself with that, especially after Lorraine Newman, you know, sees me and meets me and gets to be my friend and sees all the stuff I do and sees my apartment 2C turn as the Girl Scout at age 21. And she said, Oh, you were so ready. You could have gone and auditioned for SNL. And I thought, Oh, Jesus, Kelly, look what you did.
0: (laughs) What advice do you have for the young person who Mm. grows up in a very difficult situation and maybe in the shadow of somebody great and what they do to take the steps to get to the next level and have the kind of amazing life that you've had?
1: My biggest advice for anyone who's living in the shadow of anyone else is to, whatever your, whatever the easy option is about hiding or not taking the time to learn your own craft or learn your own way, you know, don't take the easy way out. Go learn a craft. Um, find your own way through your unique expression will always be present in that. Um, You know, my, my my foolishness was if 10,000 people aren't applauding for me, then I'm worthless or the work is worthless. And that's not the way artists learn. Artists learn by getting up and failing. And I never gave myself the chance to fail because I couldn't, I, I could not let myself fail because my dad was perfect in my eyes. And so I didn't start failing until late into my thirties and 40, you know, into my forties really to letting myself fail as an artist. So fail, fail big, fail often. And, um, and fail with joy.
0: If George were alive today mm-hmm, and he saw what an amazing life that you've have for yourself and you build your incredible relationship with
1: well I, luckily he did see all of that but yes
0: but to know that it's continuing mm-hmm. what would he say to you and then if he had a chance to ever speak to a group of young people who wanted to be in the entertainment and bu- business what advice do you think he would give to the young artist to get to the kind of stage of their well, career, that that's he got easy his. because he
1: talked about it a lot. Um, write everything down. Write everything down. Write every thought you have down. Someone gave him that advice when he was seventeen, and he followed it, and he did, and he he was a a, a, a you know an artist in that sense, and had an incredible work ethic, and was able to do fourteen HBO specials and have a career um, over, you know. Fifty years because of that. So, write. Take yourself seriously. Take your work seriously, and write your own thoughts down. Take respect yourself enough. And of course, um, you know he'd be extremely proud, obviously. And even you know, even though I did the solo show, that it made him feel uncomfortable, and wrote the book, and all of that. You know, the thing I wanted is I wanted people to learn that there was many sides to George, and that when we idealize people, and put them on a pedestal that we're only harming ourselves when we do that. We're all humans. We're all broken in some way. And that when we accept our brokenness and our woundedness, and still are able to move into the world and do our work. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to hide our brokenness from each other. And so, you know, I think my dad would be I think that's the truth I was able to tell and am able to tell in my life that my dad wasn't able to do. And if, if your job as a child is to move the ball forward a little bit generation by generation, I think that's what I did for the Carlin's was I moved, I moved the definition of truth to include a a wider definition and a broader definition. And yet I'm still here to be a Carlin and to speak the truth.
0: Kelly Carlin, this has been (laughs) fucking unbelievable. Really extraordinary. Thank
1: you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right.
0: Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests meet them shake their hand ask them a few questions or else if they're out of town out of state or out of the country we'll skype them in or facetime them or anything like that so they can be there why not so let me look here randomly and pick somebody all right landing on cool pr maven may fifteenth, two 2019 heading reads every episode's a winner five stars The comment reads, Barry has a sense of curiosity that benefits the listener. He drills deep and unearths insights, info, and perspective not found elsewhere. Plus, he clearly has a vast Rolodex because his guests run deep, from headliners to producers and more. My faves are his interviews with comedians, and when I die, I want Barry to write my obituary because his introductions put federal dossiers to shame. Pick an interview with someone you admire and it will be the best podcast listening experience ever. Wow. Thank you so much, Cool PR Maven. You are a winner. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life and instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and other contaminants circulating in your home normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Dave Attell. There's some people who are naturally gifted some people that for me it took years and years it's like it, it's worth it you know it's just worth it and like the ride was so good I mean like just like getting to meet the comics hanging with them you know like no better hang than went to comics you know just like talking jokes talking you know just crazy stuff and um, you know I would say that like you know everybody wants to do it it's when you need to do it that's when it becomes really like you know almost like a passion and that's kind of what with comedy it's like you need to do it and if you don't need to do it then you better really really want to do it thank you so much for listening and have a great day They have bought to gate, It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
1: Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even
0: if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.